Uh, children, it's great to have you in the service. If uh, you can read, there are the sermon sheets that you can try and sort of follow along with. If you can't read, try and think of three things that stood out to you from the sermon and maybe your parents or someone else might ask you at the end and, and we'll see how well you, um, what you got from the sermon. The Word of God is for all of us. It's not just for adults, uh, but it's for you guys as well. All right. As some of you will know, um, Kerry and I recently returned from a trip to Turkey, and I want to thank the church for their prayers and their support to be able to enable such. In preparation for the trip and for possible uh, future trips, I tried to find out a bit about how one ought to speak and to act in Turkey. You see, their norms can be quite different from ours. Now, to date, as we've worked through the book of Matthew, We've seen from the first few chapters that Jesus comes as king. Last week we learned that just as there is a king, there is also a kingdom. And Matt showed that Jesus began to call all sorts of people to himself. For as there is a king and a kingdom, there are also subjects in the kingdom. And now today, Jesus is going to tell us that the kingdom that we are entering is nothing like the one that we are leaving. And as his subjects in his kingdom we can expect to learn new norms, new ways of behaviour, new ways of thinking, new ways of speaking to one another. Brace yourself, brothers and sisters, for we are entering the kingdom of heaven and nothing, nothing in the kingdom below from which we flee has prepared us for the glorious norms that we shall experience under King Jesus. Today we come to the Sermon on the Mount, Here Jesus provides teaching to his disciples about what ought to be normative for sons and daughters of the kingdom. He speaks with such potency that we are compelled, that we cannot remain as we are, but broken we must come before the throne of grace and impeach our Father yet again to continue his mighty work of sanctification in us until indeed we shine like stars in a dark world. One writer pens these words, The more I read these three chapters, Matthew 5, 6, and 7, the more I am both drawn to them and shamed by them. Their brilliant light draws me like a moth to a spotlight, but the light is so bright that it sears and burns. No room is left for forms of piety which are nothing more than veneer and sham. Perfection is demanded. As I come to this passage this morning, I am reminded all the more acutely of my sin, my failings, my shortcomings. So I am excited and daunted to come to this scripture in our Sunday series. We sit here today in town that has been described as the Bible Belt of Queensland, a town in which the majority of residents describe themselves as Christians, a town that has more churches per capita, so I'm told, than any other postcode in Queensland. And yet do we get a foretaste of the kingdom here? Do we walk down the streets and hear people declaring the praise of God? Is it a salty town? And some of you might be on the edge of your seats. Oh, yeah, preach it, brother. So many of those guys out there, they're so nominal. They need to hear this. But as we begin the Sermon on the Mount, I want to ask you to turn the spotlight on your own life. Jesus didn't preach this sermon in Nazareth or Jerusalem where so many people rejected him. He preached it in the, in the countryside where his followers had come to him. You profess to follow Christ and you've turned up to hear the sermon That is fantastic. Can I humbly remind you, I, as your your likewise inadequate brother, can I humbly remind us 
that Jesus spoke these words to those who followed him, who followed him all the way out into the wilderness. They likewise turned up to hear a sermon, the Sermon on the Mount, that is. And Jesus, who is complete in wisdom, felt these words were ever so pertinent for them to hear, and they remain so pertinent for us to hear. We need to let ourselves be searched by them this morning. As we go through this, then, I want to ask you not to close the shutters of your life, but to open them up, to let the light shine in, to let the light enter into every chamber of your life, so that the one who began the good process of sanctification in you might continue that good work through to completion. Let us pray. Father, watch over my words now. Keep them in accordance with your truth. Give no voice to that which is beyond what is written. Father, forgive me for my sins and enable me to preach your righteousness even as I fall short of your righteousness. Thank you that you don't just call for our allegiance, but for our transformation. We don't want to remain the same. Lead us into your righteousness, Lord. Purify us, we pray. Conform our lives to the pattern of your word. Encourage us, Lord, and give us strength to continue on paths of righteousness, I ask. Amen. So as we begin chapter 5, it reads, Seeing the crowds, he went up onto the mountain, and when he sat down, his disciples came to him. And he opened his mouth and taught them, saying, Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Before we get to the thrust of today's passage, and I will note that the thrust of today's passage kind of carries over into next, next sermon as well, um, we're going to primarily be exploring what the Beatitudes are, making some concluding remarks and then, and then carrying some over to the next time. But uh, before we get to that, I think it's worthwhile defining three things. Firstly, the crowds, no doubt, are the same crowds that we saw in chapter 4. These are the people who've come from all over the surrounding countryside, In chapter 5, then, when it reads, and his disciples came to him, it is likely that he's using the word disciple in the general sense, those who wanted to follow him and listen to him and learn from him. Thus, we assume that Jesus is indeed speaking to a large audience of followers as he sits upon the mountain. This is supported elsewhere in the text, and we, we shouldn't reduce it down to sort of thinking that it's just the 12. Secondly, we need to make sure that we are clear what is meant by the kingdom of heaven, Diego helpfully pointed out a few weeks ago that this phrase is synonymous with kingdom of God, but perhaps a little easier on the ears of the pious Jews who who wouldn't even bring themselves to speak the name of God. And further, while we acknowledge that God is sovereign over the entire universe, when the New Testament talks about this kingdom, it is referring to that which receives God's blessing and the impartation of life. And so we are implored to enter in to the kingdom. And elsewhere, Jesus warns of those who are thrown out of the kingdom, the subjects who are thrown out where there is weeping and gnashing of teeth. So the kingdom of God is something, God is sovereign over the entire universe, but he is calling us into the domain where there is life and blessing and peace with him. The kingdom has already been inaugurated and it has arrived in the first coming of Jesus. And we read about this in Matthew 12, 28. But if it is by the Spirit of God that I cast out demons, then the kingdom of God has come upon you. So Jesus says, as he casts out demons. The kingdom of God is in that sense already upon us, and yet the kingdom is yet to be experienced in full. It is yet to be consummated, as some have said. 
And this is perhaps well illustrated from a parable found in the Gospel of Luke in chapter 19, where a man of noble birth uh, is to have a kingdom, but he must travel to a distant land, receive full authority before returning, judging and setting things straight. The kingdom of heaven will feature heavily in the next three chapters of the Gospel of Matthew, and we do well to appreciate that it is both a present reality as well as a future glorious hope. The third thing that we must consider is the meaning of the Greek word variably translated as blessed or happy. Now, certainly the word has a broad meaning. God blesses man, man blesses God. We are considered blessed. Uh, Perhaps uh, an awkward but functional definition is it is the bestowal of worth. When we bless God, we ascribe to him worth. When God blesses us, he imparts to us worth. It is a condescending act of grace and a beautiful one. Ours is an act of worship. His is an act of grace. So here where it says, blessed is the one, it is denoting that this individual is receiving from God something of great worth, receiving a blessing in our common understanding of the phrase. But what it, what it doesn't mean, uh, it doesn't just mean happiness. Uh, some, some translations do sort of render it, but it makes it very difficult when it reads, happy is the one who mourns. Um, it, is, it is possible to receive blessing even in sadness. So just to quickly recap on those three technical details, the disciples here, the recipients of the Sermon on the Mount, are not just the twelve, but they actually constitute a much larger group of people who are following Jesus and listening to his teaching. Number two, God is sovereign over the whole world, but in the Sermon on the Mount, his kingdom particularly pertains to that which is under his rule, which will receive blessing and life. The kingdom has begun as God reigns in the hearts of those who confess him, but this kingdom awaits a future and glorious consummation. And finally, to be blessed is more than just being really, really happy, but rather it is to receive something of profound worth from God our Father. All right, well now I think we're ready to look at the Beatitudes. We'll start with the first. Blessed are the poor in spirit for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Again, as we've seen twice recently, repentance was central to the proclamation of the gospel. Repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. Dare I say it, but those who are arrogant and proud do not come to repent. Even if such is forced upon them externally, their hearts never truly turn from their folly, nor do they seek forgiveness from God. But it is those who've been humble to repent. Poverty of spirit is the soil from which true repentance sprouts. Those who are not conceited within themselves but recognize their own spiritual bankruptcy, they are the ones who cast themselves in full dependence upon their creator, seeking his grace. It is these who sing, nothing in my hand I bring, simply to the cross I cling. And accordingly, Jesus pronounces that theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Curiously, while all the other blessings are pronounced as something to be received in the future, the Beatitudes start and finish with the present blessing of receiving the kingdom. This brackets, in a sense, all the other blessings, if you will, and the other blessings are contained within the kingdom. And unlike the other blessings yet to be received, this blessing is pronounced as a present reality that the kingdom of heaven is already ours in Christ Jesus. 
Blessed are those who mourn, for they shall be comforted. We should clarify that Jesus is here not endorsing all grief. He's not making a virtue of depression. Much of our grief, much of my grief, comes from selfishness and unmet selfishness. And we need to be on our guard against that. We, we should not forget what happened to our forefathers as they wandered in the Exodus. There, God punished most severely those who were given to nothing more than selfish grief, and they grumbled against God for what they didn't have. The world chases present happiness. It despises the way of mourning, and it flees from it. But the Christian's compass doesn't guide him away from suffering, but towards righteousness. And this journey inevitably leads through the valley of mourning. For the more one seeks righteousness, the more one will mourn. You will mourn at your own shortcomings and find yourself in the company of Paul as he cries out, What a wretched man am I! Who will rescue me from this body of death? You will mourn the unrighteousness of the world. And so you will find yourself in the company of the psalmist as he cries out, My eyes shed streams of tears, for your law is not obeyed. You will mourn the suffering of others, and so you will find yourself in the company of Jesus, who wept when confronted with the death of his friend Lazarus and the grief of his two sisters. Buddhism teaches that if you mourn, you are on the wrong path, because mourning comes from unmet desire, and desire is evil. The obvious paradox is that they mourn, they desire not to mourn, right? But leaving that one aside... um, Mourning does come from desire, and Christians desire righteousness, and in this present age, righteousness is in short supply, and it is so often assaulted. So if you mourn, it is not necessarily because you're on the wrong path, but it could be that you are on the right path. We need to be careful of a form of Christianity that is triumphant and haughty, always looking down on the world, but never feeling compassion, never mourning, never, never grieving the brokenness. It's a very shallow form of piety where we will walk with Jesus through Matthew 23 as he denounces unrighteousness and pronounces his judgment upon them, but then will fail to stand with Jesus at the end of chapter 23 where he looks out upon them and he laments. O Jerusalem, Jerusalem, the city that kills the prophets and stones those who are sent to it, How often would I have gathered your children together as a hen gathers her brood under her wings, and you you were not willing? I remember quite clearly once uh, being amongst a group of Christian friends and we were watching the American Gospel, and uh, as we saw different personalities coming up espousing just really ridiculous ideas, there was almost a sense of of humour in the room as we marveled, even joked about how these people could be so blind as to what the Bible actually says. For those unfamiliar with the film, it it unpacks uh, the emptiness of the American prosperity gospel. And that was right. Theologically, we were correct, but we were not mourning. And I I realized halfway, halfway through the film that there was one person who was crying, and she was broken because these people were dying and perishing under a lie. And that is the character that Christ... And the Spirit of God will form in us. And so it is right and normal that tears mark the path of the faithful as they pilgrimage through this harsh world. But we can hold on to this beautiful promise. Jesus says we shall receive our comfort. 
Indeed, in a verse that many of you are familiar with, Jesus promises to one day wipe away every tear from our eye, and mourning itself shall be no more. Blessed are the meek, for they shall inherit the earth. How does meekness differ from poverty of spirit? One writer has suggested that poverty of spirit pertains to our evaluation of ourself, while meekness has to do with our evaluation of others and our evaluation of God and the way we then accordingly relate to them. Poverty of spirit is an accurate self-reflection whereby I acknowledge my brokenness and inability and meekness then is my estimation of others, recognizing firstly the greatness of God and secondly, and secondly recognizing the inherent value of my fellow human because they are made in his image. And we must then act accordingly. Meekness will desire the other's interests ahead of our own. Meekness should not be confused or replaced with weakness. I remember a family member of mine who, who once had a dog, and when I went to visit and walked through the door, it would come rushing out to meet me. It would come rushing really low to the ground, its ears down, its tail between its leg, legs, and then it would circle around my feet in quite some excitement still, with its head almost touching the ground and the tail between the legs, and then at the end of that, well, usually it would then urinate on the floor. <laughs> and the owners weren't too impressed with this whole situation, and they explained that apparently this is some sort of canine form of uh, excessive subservience. This was an emotionally weak dog. And the world might try and tell us that this is what meekness looks like, a spineless subservience, a groveling, but that isn't what meekness is. Meekness is, in a sense, courageous. Consider Moses. We read in Numbers 12:3, Now the man Moses was very meek, more than all people who were on the face of the earth. And as the chapter unfolds, we see a demonstration of what this looks like. Moses was leading the Israelites through the desert, but there was dissent rising in the ranks. His brother and his sister, Aaron and Miriam, were speaking against him. God judges Aaron and Miriam, and he strikes Miriam with leprosy, and Moses then cries out to God on her behalf, O oh God, please heal her, please. In those days, leadership was often brutally won, brutally maintained, and almost always brutally lost. Any insubordination could, could literally endanger Moses' life, and we do remember that at times the people plotted to kill him. In one situation, in a sense, Moses' own position has been severely compromised by what Aaron and Miriam have done, but he is seeking the good of the other. Many in leadership seek the utter destruction of anyone who threatens their position, but here meekness leads Moses to consider Miriam's needs above his own, and that is courageous, and that is a good example for us. We need a double dose of this in today's church. I fear sometimes we idolize strength and we marginalize meekness. We buy into the get-what-yourself-what-you-can attitude of the world. The world cries out, take what you can get. Meekness replies, I will gift what I can give. The world cries out, victory to the strong and the powerful will rule. Meekness responds, my master came to serve and he washed his disciples' feet. The world cries out, survival to the fittest. Meekness responds, 
I pick up my cross and I lay down my life. The Bible makes much of meekness. The world makes nothing of it. This is a call to be countercultural. This is a call to be kingdom normative. And again, we need to take encouragement from the blessing that is promised. The meek will inherit the earth. When you consider the, the global leaders of today, I'm not sure if you would describe any of them as meek, even in small measure. But Jesus promises that one day the meek will inherit the earth. And a billion years from today, the meek will still be celebrating the mercies of God. Consider for a moment the joy of living in a world where meekness is so espoused. This is just a small foretaste of what we have to look forward to in the kingdom. Next one. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they shall be satisfied. I remember waking up and being greeted with the warm rays, warm rays of, of morning sun as they fell softly upon the Tasmanian countryside. The area was, was largely a patchwork of, of fields and forests, and I set out to explore on foot. I meant to go to the end of the lane, but at the end of the lane, there was another lane that was just as promising as the one that I just walked down. And so I meant to go through the valley to the next crest, and at the next crest, there was another valley equally as beautiful as the one I just passed through. And it went on like this for quite some time until I found myself quite some ways from where I had started. And as I looked back across the valleys and the hills and the farmland, uh, I became aware that I had both skipped breakfast and I hadn't brought a water bottle. The morning sun now had a little bit of bite, and as I, as I made my way back, I remember passing by a farm, and there was a, a farm dam uh, just over a barbed wire fence some ways, and I, I, I contemplated jumping the fence and trying to pick my way through the blackberry bushes just to get to the water in an effort to quench my thirst. Uh, luckily, I soon came upon a farmer in his front garden, and rather than jumping the fence, I jumped my pride, and I confessed my folly and asked for a glass of water, and he gave me one, he gave me a few, and I've got to say, they tasted really good. Uh, proceeding on from there, uh, somewhat refreshed, I started to fantasise about what was the first thing that I was going to eat as soon as I walked through the cottage door. And I was nearing home, I was only about two k's away at this stage, and there I spotted something. There beside the road in a ditch, there was a carrot. And I have no idea how that carrot got there, but I do remember crouching down beside that, that road in the ditch and lifting it up, and I still remember... I can't remember the carrot I ate yesterday, but I still remember the satisfaction as I crunched into that carrot. This is the story about a man who misses breakfast, right? Oh, goodness, consider what happens when we miss lunch as well. There is a danger that when we read hunger, we think, yeah, I wouldn't mind a bite to eat, but dare I say it, Jesus' original audience was far more schooled in hunger than we are, and I think this would have meant something a little bit more to them. They lived in an age before refrigerators and water on tap and supermarkets. The point being that the one who truly hungers and thirsts for righteousness, he'll jump a fence for it, he'll swallow his pride for it, he'll get down in a ditch for it, and that's just where it begins. And Jesus promises, Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they will be satisfied. We need to ask ourselves today, what are we hungering and thirsting for? 
We hunger and thirst for many things, perhaps. We hunger for effect. We hunger for experience. We hunger, sometimes we even hunger for spiritual maturity, uh, perhaps sometimes inconsistently perceiving what that looks like. But I ask, do we hunger and thirst in the depth of our being? Are we desperate for righteousness? Do you long for a day when you are finally rescued from all trace of carnal corruption? Even now do we rejoice in, the sm- rejoice in the small foretaste of such which comes through the present sanctifying work of the Spirit in our lives. Is there something that intrudes our thoughts that affects our behaviour? If so, I praise God for it. And Jesus says, Blessed are you, for you will be satisfied. Blessed are the merciful, for they shall receive mercy. Grace and mercy are, to some extent, synonymous, but if grace is primarily to bestow love when love is undeserved, then mercy is perhaps primarily to bestow love in response to the helplessness or misery of another person. And I want to remind us that this value ought to be normative for those of us who claim Christ as king. And it has, I would argue, this has been a defining characteristic of the church through all generations. Christians have built schools and hospitals, restored alcoholics and sheltered single mums. They've given food to the poor and refuge to the homeless. They've run orphanages and fought slavery and combated sex trafficking and served in prisons. And the church will continue both individually and corporately. It will continue to be known for its mercy, the true church. Is mercy a word that people would use to describe you? It is not enough that we treat people merely as they deserve, for that is not the way that God treated us. As we have received mercy, so too we should dispense mercy. Blessed are the pure in heart, for they shall see God. Purity, and I mean this in a holistic sense rather than just sexual purity, though certainly uh, the latter is contained within the former, Purity is today perhaps regarded uh, the least among these virtues. It is seen as archaic, it is seen as as Victorian era, it is seen as something that most sensible people have left behind long ago. It It is the universal joy killer. But such can never be the attitude of those who worship the lamb without blemish. A saint will always value purity because a saint values God. As the psalmist declares... Who shall ascend the hill of the Lord, and who shall stand in his holy place? He who has clean hands and a pure heart. And note, this doesn't just mean doing the right thing or or not doing anything wrong. Jesus doesn't say, blessed are the pure in action, but blessed are the pure in heart. This exposes us to some soul-searching questions. Where does my heart go, and what does my heart do? How does it feel about deception? Does it enjoy a saucy joke or some hot gossip? How does it feel towards my boss or my friend or my neighbour? Am I content with what God has given me? How do I manage my attractions within the position of life that God has granted me, be it singleness or marriage? When we start to probe our hearts, it really does pull down the external veneer that we sometimes hide behind. The saint values purity because the saint values God. 
And how can our hearts gaze upon the pure God if they are already fixated upon impurity? The writer to the Hebrews tells us to strive for holiness, quote, without which no one will see the Lord. And the implication here is similar. We are being exhorted to strive for purity. This is not just conformity of external behavior, but this is purity that reaches right down into our hearts. And this is something that no one else other than God can achieve in our lives. Blessed are the peacemakers, for they shall be called sons of God. Evidently, God is a peacemaker. The greatest story of history, the story of history, is how God has brought about peace with us. It is no surprise then that if we are to be sons of God, we too are to be peacemakers. Some translations render this children of God, but sons of God is, is more accurate, um, more accurate to the, to the text, that is. And this doesn't imply that women are excluded from the blessing, but to render it children would be to emphasize status, whereas to render it sons is to emphasize both status and function and possibly character. In first century, it was the son who carried on the work of the father, and for some, it was the son who was seen to carry on the character of the father. Men and women are alike included in this virtue, but men and women alike can enjoy the prospect that God has asked us to carry on the work that he has started, the work of peacemaking, and to bear his character to the world. Jesus here encourages the would-be peacemakers When they enter into eternal life, he may well say, well done, good and faithful servant. You did did indeed adopt the character of your father. You did seek to do the works that he was doing. Now we need to ask ourselves the question, what is it to be a peacemaker? Evidently, an integral component is the proclamation of the gospel, for indeed it is precisely, precisely in the gospel that God our Father obtained at one for us the ultimate peace, and we need to seek to imitate his actions. As we read in Isaiah, how beautiful upon the mountains are the feet of him who brings good news, who publishes peace, who brings good news of happiness, who publishes salvation, and who says to Zion, your God reigns. I think, though, the application here is both that and still somewhat broader. Peacemaking is in our DNA. It is in our character. We cannot turn it on and off, but we can expect that it will come out time and time again. It is different from merely being peaceable. I've known plenty of peaceable uh, people in my time. Some of them are quite right conflict avoidant, I must say. Um, That can be a calculated behaviour a selfish behaviour to better position ourselves within our given circumstances. At the close of World War II, cities right across Europe were were in ruins and and rubble and everything, except, of course, for Portugal and Spain and Sweden and Switzerland and Ireland and the Vatican. These shrewd players had adopted a policy of neutrality to escape any suffering upon their own soil. But the character of God within us is not selfish and calculated, but rather it is self-giving, it is sacrificial. We don't merely avoid conflict in the workplace or in the family or in the neighbourhood. We certainly don't stoke it, but rather we help to extinguish it so that in doing so, we reflect something of the character of our Saviour. And this may come at great personal cost. We know it came at ultimate cost for Jesus. 
And we can expect that this might come at personal cost for ourselves, particularly if we're not a third party uh, to the conflict. But we still seek peace. This is who we are. And Jesus offers us the encouragement that to be thus is to bear something of the character of our Father. And isn't that what we today want? Now we come to the final beatitude. I wasn't sure if this was going to be really long, but you you all seem to be awake still, so we'll keep pressing. Blessed are those who are persecuted for righteousness' sake, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. God's people, it seems, have always been a part of a small, annoying minority who proclaim righteousness to an unrighteous world. Historically, the message was not always well received, and we do remember the persecution that the prophets endured. But again, we receive blessing even in the midst of persecution. Jesus adds the caveat that we do well to pay attention to. It must be that we are persecuted. Why? For righteousness' sake. It is unfortunate that such has not always been the case through history and some who have professed to follow Christ have acted uh, with bigotry and violence. Uh, Church history can be uh, a sad thing to read at times Um, and I'm sure the same still continues today. Uh, Some of these individuals have been somewhat surprised when the words of the Psalms have been fulfilled against them. To quote Psalm 7, his mischief returns upon his own head and on his own skull his violence descends. The one who exercises poverty of spirit when he's on the receiving end of oppression will be quick to examine his own life and to deduce what has brought such oppression upon him. And then should he find nothing but his own righteousness, and I might add that righteousness is a continued provocation to an unrighteous world, well, then he will rejoice because he knows that his reward is great in heaven. Persecution can be varied in its forms. One thing that persecution is not, it is not trivial If someone defriends you on Facebook, think twice before labelling it persecution. Persecution in its more severe manifestations even includes the loss of life. And such has been a feature through church history. This is the point where we all pause and go, oh dear. The other Beatitudes seem uh, perhaps a little bit more palatable. Meekness and mercy, why, I think I'd like to give them a try. But this final Beatitude, I think I'd rather do without it. Maybe I can try and practice my righteousness in such a way that it doesn't attract so much negative attention. Now, I hope that uh, none of us are so crass to have actually said this out loud, but I suspect that one or two of us have have silently come close um, guilty. Persecuted. Well, not me, we say. That's, that's, that's for the brothers and sisters overseas in other countries or perhaps for prominent Christians or, or perhaps for other Christians, someone else, anyone else, anyone else but me, we hope at times. But such thinking demonstrates a lack of appreciation for the blessing that is here pronounced. And it also, defile, and also fails to appreciate that there is no way to practice godliness without at some stage encountering persecution. As it says in 2 Timothy 3.12, Indeed, all who desire to live a godly life in Christ Jesus will be persecuted. Dare I say it, but the all there is rather inclusive. To follow Jesus, you must be prepared to count the cost. But remember also the blessing. For theirs is the kingdom of heaven. What is it that you're seeking for? 
Interestingly, this is not the only blessing to consider at such times, and reviewing other passages on this topic in the Bible will cause us to reflect on other, bless other blessings, such as the increased closeness that we have with Christ, the increased fellowship that we have with him during such time, or the refining of our character that such experience brings about. But here our attention is drawn to the kingdom. If you have no desire for this kingdom, then you will receive no comfort from this blessing. But for those who yearn to draw near to God and to live under the ecstasy of his consummate rule, well, when we consider this blessing, then we will experience our persecutions in an entirely different way. I am not sure if you've ever bitten a lemon. It will always be sour, but you know that the aftertaste will be of unparalleled sweetness. This final beatitude is then expanded in a second verse, and we do well to notice a few things from this second verse which further clarify what we have read thus far, and they will also spill into our interpretation of the coming verses um, in 13 through to 17. So note what Jesus says in verse 10 is almost repeated, in a way, in verse 11. This is Hebrew parallelism, further developing an idea through a, through a second refrain. The main reason that we get this twice, I think, is because, firstly, this is really, really important for us to get. But we should also make sure we notice three other things that come about comparing verse 10 and verse 11. First, the suffering that one can expect as a result of righteousness is expanded. It includes scorn and lies and defamation and the like. If you've been perhaps lying in bed awake at night, concerned that persecution seems to have skipped you by because you've not yet been burned at the stake or something similar, uh, you can perhaps cut yourself a little slack. Second, our understanding of righteousness is brought into sharper focus. Here at the end of the list of the Beatitudes, righteousness serves a bit as a catch-all for the above-mentioned Beatitudes. In a way, righteousness is to be right living, and right living has just been defined by Jesus according to poverty of spirit, according to mournfulness, according to meekness and mercy and peacemaking and the like. But now righteousness is further defined as following Jesus. In these parallel statements, Jesus says, first, persecuted for righteousness. And then he says, second, persecuted on my account. This is the Hebrew parallelism. It is informing us that the two statements are to be taken as expressions and further development of the same idea. In a sense, Jesus defines righteousness, and to follow him, him then becomes the practice of righteousness. And there is, I feel, one third thing that we also need to note here. Jesus is sitting on the mount teaching the crowd, no doubt a motley and heterogeneous crew, much like yourselves, I should add. Um, and he says... Blessed are those, blessed are those, blessed are those. But he never directly addresses the crowd, blessed are you, until now that is in verse 11. But he does so with a qualification that's important to pick up. Blessed are you when. It is the you who go on to practice righteousness and as a result experience persecution who receive this blessing. It is not the you holistically, the crowd before him. We know some of them will fall away. We assume that not all of those on the hillside listening to Jesus continue to persevere in such and to practice his teaching. But Jesus addresses those who would. Following on from that, in the next section of your Bible, you will see that Jesus continues to address you. You are the salt of the earth, he says. You are the light of the world. 
And we can assume that the you in verse 13, you are the salt of the, uh, you are the, salt of the earth, is the same you that occurs six times in verses 11 and 12. It is the conditional you. It is the you who are going to follow Jesus Christ, going to walk in paths of righteousness, going to enter the kingdom of heaven. It is these that are the salt and light of the world. We need to be very careful against interpreting this in some sort of humanistic way. Jesus is not saying to the crowds in general, to everyone, all you people out there, you are the light of the world. You've all got some good in you. you just got to let it shine. Such a theme would make for a great kids movie. But it has no home in biblical Christianity. We are the ones who brought darkness into the world. We are the ones who unleashed chaos. And God is the one who brings light into the world as he shines through us and as he reforms us. We fool ourselves if we think that we can just try a little harder and then become the light of the world. But as Christ shines in our hearts and renovates our actions, well, then we will shine forth into a dark world where humanity continues to unleash untold terror and chaos and darkness. This is what it is to be salt and light. This brings us to the end of verse 13, and it gives us just a little sneak peek into the coming verses, which we shall cover in our next sermon on Matthew. But I must add one final reflection on the Beatitudes. Much of my tone to the present, uh, whether explicitly or implicitly, has been exhortative. That is, hey, you guys, do this, be that. Much of Scripture is exhortative, and so we preach it as such. And I think the Beatitudes, given their position in the Sermon on the Mount, should rightly be thought of as to have an element of such. But grammatically, however, the linguists amongst us will notice that Jesus is giving them to us in the indicative. Blessed are the merciful. Blessed are the pure. He just states it how it is. This isn't so that we might merely register it as a fact and continue on unaffected by such. But of course, there is a reason that Jesus gives us these statements in the indicative. And I think it is this. Inasmuch as they are an imperative, a call to reformation, they are also an encouragement, a call to persevere. And this allows for both. For the Christian soldier who is yet to enter the battle, they might need to hear the imperative loud and clear. This soldier is how you are to conduct yourself as a warrior of the kingdom. But for the Christian soldier who is battered and bruised and exhausted and tired and labours on, these truths are compelling still, but less is the morning trumpet call that stirs one to action and more is the sweet balm at noon that will see him fit to finish through to the end of the day. In closing, then, can I ask you, read these words. Memorize these words. Meditate upon these words. For they've been given to you, and they shall help to sustain you on your journey. When the course is not easy, and indeed, if you seek to follow Christ, the course won't be easy. When the course is not easy, we note he who has gone before us. We note Jesus, who was the one who was ultimately pure. We note Jesus, the one who mourned. Jesus, who practiced humility and meekness. Jesus, who was the ultimate peacemaker and such at the ultimate cost. He has sought righteousness above all else, and he was the one ultimately persecuted. He's not ignorant of our hardships. He's not unaware of the trouble that's come upon us. 
and will come upon us, I shall add. Yet he stands ahead of you. He stands ahead of you and he beckons you and he says, come, come and follow me. And he pronounces a blessing on your path. When your righteousness seems in vain and is getting you nowhere, be reassured you are still on the right path. This is the path our Saviour took. When it is hard and the world opposes your path, be encouraged for his blessings will not disappoint. And when outright persecution springs forth against you, then I pray that you might remember the one instruction that Jesus has given us in this passage. And that is to rejoice and to be glad because you remember that great is your reward in heaven. Rejoice, my friends. Rejoice and be glad because he's commanded us so. The victory is ours and great is our reward if we continue on the path of righteousness that Jesus calls us to. We're going to close in prayer. We're going to pick up some other themes in a few weeks' time. But let us close now in prayer. Father, your word both shames us as we consider our iniquity and excites us as we consider your work of transformation. Humble us, we pray. Humble us as we consider our own iniquity. Break us as we consider all iniquity. Cause us, we pray, to hunger and thirst for your righteousness, to seek it above all else. Strip away the facades of shallow piety that so often characterize our lives. Strip them away as we learn to practice true purity, purity of the heart. Help us to adopt meekness and to practice mercy and to sacrifice for peace. Prosper us in our discipleship that we might follow well that we might carry on the course of our master, even taking up our cross. And in all this, Father, may we rejoice as we consider the riches that we have in Christ, as we consider the glories of the age to come, we consider a kingdom that sets all things right, we consider a future where you wipe away every tear from our eye. Cause us to rejoice, Lord. Amen. Please stand with us.